as I was saying, what I, what I would like to do is on, on Sundays, let's pray for the people around the world who listen in and who maybe don't have fellowship. And I'd like them to know that we care about them and we want them to be able to have some sense of fellowship. And so, and then ask God's blessing on our time here. Heavenly Father, thank you for the opportunity to gather with believers who, Lord, support us and pray for us and care about us and care about one another. And we think of people around the country and around the world who have somehow lost fellowship because of things that happened where the gospel was removed from their churches or perhaps they don't have a church to go to. We pray that they also would find a blessing from the, the teachings of the Scripture and that they might know that we're praying for them and that we care about them. Help us, Father, to continually uh, humble ourselves uh, at Your feet and to listen in, intently to Your Word that we might believe and we might grow. And Lord, give us grace to obey everything You teach us. In Jesus' name, Amen. Okay, we are in Second Corinthians chapter 2, we're on verse 3. Verse 3, it says, And this is the very thing I wrote you, lest when I come I should have sorrow from those who ought to make me rejoice, having confidence in you all that my joy would be the joy of you all. There's a few verses here in Second Corinthians that are a little bit difficult to understand, and I notice in some of my better commentaries, they end up uh, continually recreating the scenario. That's, uh, that's what's making it. Uh, the difficulty in 2 Corinthians is there's all this background stuff that's happened between Paul and the, the Corinthian church that he's addressing, and we're not privy to what all happened, and so you have to do kind of a recreation, which we've been doing and sharing with you. But that Paul had um, uh, wrote 1 Corinthians, and then... There was evidently another visit, and there was a, then he was intended to visit a third time, but rather than do so, he wrote what's called the severe letter. And we'll read about that a little bit later in 2 Corinthians. And the severe letter was written because Paul felt that going in person to correct them would have caused too much sorrow for him and possibly for them. So he hoped that the letter would bring the correction so they wouldn't have to come to them in sorrow. And so this is the issue. So it says here, and this is the very thing I wrote you. Now that I wrote you is a reference to that severe letter that is not in our canon and no one has and no one knows exactly the content. Hold on. (laughs) So when I was first reading this, uh, looking back what I wrote you, you think it's if you don't have that context, you think it's 1 Corinthians, but it's not referring to 1 Corinthians. It's referring to something we don't have. Exactly. That's exactly the way it is. So it's not uh, talking about 1 Corinthians, talking about a non-existent letter from our perspective, but one that they had read and they knew the content. So we have to um, um, kind of recreate it in our minds. But the letter was uh, to, ca- to urge them to repent and there was an offending party that uh, evidently had been disciplined. And we'll be talking about that in, through these verses. And it's amazing how much has been written over the years about this, trying to understand, okay, who was it? Was it this guy? What did he do? 
and what were the issues. But what we know is that he wrote the severe letter and so that rather than coming and having to deal with this in person, he felt the letter would be better. And he said, I should have sorrow from those who ought to make me rejoice. And literally in the Greek it says, from whom he was owed joy. For whom I was owed joy, he says. So what he means by that is that because he's been faithful, and he talked about this in 1 Corinthians, that he had been like a father to them in the gospel, and that because he had faithfully preached the true gospel to them, and because Paul sincerely cared about them and had their best interests in mind, and that the things he wrote and the things that he said were done in order that they might avoid error, avoid God's judgment, avoid harming one another and, and harming the cause of Christ, and that they might have what they need to grow spiritually. And so having that, that having been the case, they owed him joy. Now what joy did they owe him? The joy of, that he would have in seeing um, the believers that had come to Christ through his ministry grow in the grace and knowledge of God. And that's one of the greatest joys that any minister of the gospel could ever participate in is actually seeing God change lives by His work of grace. Because there, there's no greater joy. That reminds me of a cross-reference. I think I just have my little baby Bible down here. Okay. I think in First Thessalonians or Second First Thessalonians, there's he talks about believers being his joy. Maybe someone will find it before me. Oh, I found it. Beat you. <laughs> 1 Thessalonians 2.20 <laughs> um, Actually, uh, starting with verse 19, For who is our hope or joy or crown of exaltation? It is not even in you in the presence of our Lord Jesus at His coming, for you are our glory and joy. So, the joy that Paul was owed from the Christians was that when Christ returned, they'd be joyfully and faithfully serving Christ and had run the race and fought the fight and there's this eternal glory. So his joy was to see how God was working in the lives of these Christians and in their faithful and obedient servants. 1 Thessalonians 2, 19 and 20, I just, I just referenced. Okay? So, you ought to have given me joy, having confidence in you all that my joy would be the joy of you all. He almost sounds like he's from Texas here, doesn't he? In the, in the, in the New American Standard. I have a little note here that the, N, that the NIV actually has a, a easier to understand rendering of this that's accurate. Who has an NIV? Come on, you can fess up. <laughs> okay, we got one over here. All right, the mic goes to uh, All right, what are we doing? <laughs> Ziegler. Yeah, what, what, okay, what, what, Tim, if you can read 2 Corinthians 2 3, the passage we're studying in the NIV. <laughs> I wrote as I did so that when I came I should not be distressed by those who ought to make me rejoice. I had confidence in all of you that you would all share my joy. Okay, 
That's a, that's a little simpler rending, rendering and it's accurate. That, that is the strength of the NIV is... That verse is why I have this Bible. That's why you have that Bible. <laughs> okay. And uh, <laughs> that's good, Tim. So, the NIV is somewhat less literal, but sometimes they actually bring it out in a way that in this case, in this particular verse... It makes it far more understandable. The New American Standard is following the Greek more accurately, but it's not the way we usually use English, and so it gets a little bit choppy. Um, okay, a couple passages to look up. Robert, we'll start with you. If you could look up 2 Corinthians 7, 6, that'll give us a little background to this issue that's going on. And then, Keith, if you could be looking for 2 Corinthians 12, 11. And I have a quote to look for. Second okay. Corinthians 7, 6. But God who comforts the depressed comforted us by the coming of Titus. Okay, so what had happened was, now the reason I had him read that, that God comforted them by the coming of Titus, was that Titus had come back with the report about what had happened after they received the severe letter. And Paul's concern was that when they received it, they would just react in the wrong way and not repent, and just become embittered or, or something like that, that would be a really bad outcome. But Titus came back with the report that they'd received Paul's letter favorably and were willing to take the correct action, and so that was comforting to Paul. Now, and then 2 Corinthians 12, 11. I have become foolish. You yourselves compelled me. Actually, I should have been commended by you, for in no respect was I inferior to the most eminent apostles, even though I am a nobody. Okay, so Paul became foolish in sharing his visions because they were listening to some super apostles who claimed that they had better spiritual experiences than Paul did. And so Paul had to defend himself by getting, sort of, so to speak, down to their level and say, all right, if you guys are going to make a big deal about visions, then let me tell you mine. But he says, I'm foolish because I shouldn't even be talking like this, but you made me do it. That's, that's that's a paraphrase of what happened there. Um, David Garland's commentary, he gives a little bit of a, of a good reconstruction of what's happened here. Paul sent a letter, probably the weighty letter mentioned in 10.10, in 10, 10, in lieu of a visit. The phrase, I wrote as I did, could be translated adverbially, I wrote for precisely this reason. Namely, in order that I might not come... Uh, Another option takes it as referring to a quotation from the letter. I wrote this very thing, or this is the point of my letter. The quotation could be 123. It was in order to spare you that I did not return to Corinth, or 2-1, so that I made up my mind that I would not make another painful visit, or 2-3. I'm writing so that I may not come and be cause sorrow. All of these quotes are appropriate in, in Paul of uh, uh, as Paul's explanation for his failure to return. The most likely option takes the phrase as a summary of the contents of the pain, painful letter. The surrounding verses then repeat the main drift. Paul did not write to them to vent his anger and to inflict on them the same pain they had dealt him. We learn from two Corinthians that Paul had four motives in writing his letter. One, he wrote so that his next visit would bring joy, him bring joy instead of pain. In 13.10, he says he writes these things in 2 Corinthians while he's away from them so that he will not have to use a heavy hand when he is present. 
If they respond obediently, his visit will bring joy. This joy is more than good cheer over a happy reunion. Joy for Paul is related to the submission of the community to God's will, which in turn advances the gospel and brings glory to God. Two, he wanted them to know ultimately of his love. Three, he wanted to test their obedience. And four, he wanted to reveal to them their real earnestness for Paul. And that's all gleaned from various places in Second Corinthians so we can understand what the issues were and where they were going with it. Now let's move to uh, verse 4, 2 Corinthians 2, 4. For out of much affliction and anguish of heart, I wrote to you with many tears, not that, not that you should be made sorrowful, but that you might know the love which I have especially for you. So um, this, these tears here that Paul references, we've got some room over here and we don't mind if you come in and use it. <laughs> um, one of the commentaries was mentioning that these tears and this sorrow that he's talking about would be analogous to parents that have a rebellious child or a severely wayward child. And that sort of sorrow is very, very intense and very real. And uh, when you uh, spend however many years, let's say 15 or 16 years, pouring your love, your attention, your care, and your concern into your child, whom you love very much, and then that child determines that uh, he or she doesn't wants nothing to do with you, doesn't want anything to do with serving the God that you serve, and would prefer to run off in rebellion and live however he or she sees fit. When that happens, that is excruciatingly painful. And it is so bad that when you go through that, you would do anything to fix it if you had the power to fix it. And if there was any possible thing you could do, you would do it. And um, Paul is experiencing that very thing, even though he doesn't have a family, but he has his Christian family. And so those people that had come to Christ through the gospel that he preached, when they went wayward, it created the same sort of tears and sorrow and anguish that a wayward teenager does when they rebel against their parents. And I don't know if, if you've ever gone through that. It's uh, I have. It is absolutely something you would never, ever want. But sometimes you have no control over such things. And, and you're left with no recourse but to pray. But that's a good recourse. <laughs> because God could grab those rebellious ones and bring them back like he did in our case and um, restore the joy like the prodigal returning. And uh, there's great joy in that as well. So... But you don't want to go through it. And by the way, there isn't any magic plan that guarantees that won't happen. All right? Anybody that says that you can, you can have 100% guarantee of the outcome of the results of your parenting, it's not true. Absolutely not true. Because if that were true, um, then humans would, would not be... Well, as they are, able to make their own decisions, yes. I think it's almost similar to what we see in the, the Christian church. There's no no absolutely certain way that Paul could begin a church and have it not wander. 
It wouldn't have been Paul's fault if Corinth wandered. He did his best, and it's up to them to listen and to submit in the same exactly. way we have do our best with our kids, and then ultimately it's up to them to listen and submit as well. It's not the parents' fault necessarily. Exactly. No, there, there's no magic bullet, but because people wish there was one, and sometimes it causes them to actually stray into false teaching that offers it. Example would be Bill Gothard's teaching. His teaching is severely false. Very, very wicked teaching, in my opinion. He's, he, he's committing the Galatian heresy. And, but there are parents that will go to that because they think that his severe, uh, legalistic, heavy-handed approach might guarantee that their kids will never go wayward. They're willing to do things that are even against the gospel if they think it will fix their kids. But you can be convinced of this. I'll, I'll give you this advice. The best thing you can do is to teach your children the truth of the Word of God, to treat them in a, in a godly way as we're commanded to do so in Scripture without too much severity nor too much laxity, because either way is not good, too severe, too lax, and commit them to the Lord and uh, trust God and pray for your children and as they grow up. Make sure they're trained, they know the truth, they're prepared. And a lot of, sometimes you don't get the joy until they're in their 20s. But well, the first 10 years are pretty good, too. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Dick. You're leaving it a little bit open on the Gothard thing. Could you give a specific example where he makes a law out of something that isn't? Well, he, he commands circumcision. In, in disregard to the, book, the teaching in Galatians, he commands that people have their male children circumcised on the eighth day. And, and they fought this whole battle in Acts and in Galatians and settled that it wasn't necessary. And he goes back and teaches it like he is God's lawgiver. And it isn't just that. He has thick manuals, point by point, line by line. You can't do this, don't do this, do this, don't do this. And you have to obey it. And when um, Don Vino from... Uh, Chicago, Midwest, what's his name in his ministry? He spoke to us about the Da Vinci Code. Remember him? He does, he's, he is more than anybody else has researched Gothard and has actually confronted him in person and done all kinds of stuff to try to save people from Gothard's clutches. But Carl and I went to apologetic meeting to listen to this Don and he had a, a, a young man testify who had been raised under Gothard's teachings, and it was like being uh, oppressed and abused. It was terrible. And he had a hard time, what this young man said when he grew up, to even think or make any decisions because he'd been so controlled uh, for, for his whole life, being under his parents being under Gothard, that he was crippled. It's almost like being, I don't, I don't know what you say, like the Amish where you don't dare go out. Uh, first, uh, uh, bring it <laughs> Bring it back to Scott Kimball. Then, then I, I was yep, just going to mention another example is uh, Gary Ezzo and Growing Kids God's Way. And was Ezzo? Ezzo. Yeah, I've heard about that. It's the same kind of thing where using a heavy legalistic approach that's going to guarantee the outcome of raising kids. Now, a simple something ought to tell us that it's not possible to guarantee the outcome. Uh, Jesus had twelve disciples, and one of them went bad. All right. Uh, uh, and Paul certainly wasn't a bad apostle. He didn't teach any error. He behaved himself in a godly way with the Christians. But most of the churches, in fact, you in Second 
Isn't this activity where it says all in Asia have forsaken me? So if his spiritual children kept going wayward, uh, there's no human process that gives you 100% control over another person to make them be the, you want, the way you want them to be. And people that say they have that, don't, they don't. They don't. Yes. And I think another key issue in both of these, both on the natural family or the spiritual family, is that when you attempt to do that, having good motives, I think a lot of parents do that out of sincerity. They really care for their kids and they truly believe that this is better, but it's still destructive. It's still abusive. It's inherently abusive because I'm trying to take the place of God, either in a family or in a church. Yeah. If a church comes in and limits human freedom, human liberty that God has given us, it's inherently abusive, and you come out with the same kind of cripple spiritually that you do yeah. in a Gothard family. Yes. Human, human lawgivers are just as sinful as human lawbreakers. Yeah, because when, when, you, when you become a lawgiver, in other words, I'm going to create laws that God didn't put in the Bible, because I think it will work better if I do that. I've usurped God's authority, and, and if we needed more laws, they'd be in the Bible. Okay, they're not there. So human law givers hurt people badly. Uh, Roger. The result of that kind of thing, and we know a family that's like that, is that you end up with a performance-based relationship. Okay. And the kid only is, feels as though he's valued if he does his chores on time. We know this, this particular family had a boy about our Andrew's age, and uh, we learned that if he didn't get his chores done, done well, and on time, he didn't get a lunch. So, wow. My mom fed me whether I deserved it or not. <laughs> uh, yes, Kathy. Another thing that's really uh, hurts a lot in a family is when the family member that's either a parent or not is something like an alcoholic, and, the, and the, they mistreat the kids, and the kids want to run away. Yep. Sin, sin is always harmful. It always hurts people. Okay, in much affliction and of heart, the pain of having people you love turn away from you, and worse, turn away from a godly walk with the Lord. It is painful, and probably there's nobody here that hasn't experienced that in some regard. Almost everybody knows... Whether people you knew in church, whether it's people in family or extended family, almost everybody knows someone who's bringing a lot of sorrow to everybody around them because of what they're doing. Um, because they're either departing from the faith or in some cases people are living such very rebellious and wicked lives that the people that love them the most are at their wit's end and don't know what to do. And it, it hurts. And that's the way life is in this world. That's why God's elect, it says in Luke, cry out to him day and night for justice. But you know what it says? Well, he carry long over them. In other words, justice comes when Jesus comes. And he's going to set everything right. Um, so I wrote to you with many tears, not that you should be made sorrowful, but that you should might know the love I have for you. In other words, making them more sorrowful unless it leads to the repentance isn't Paul's goal. His goal is that they truly understand that he has their best interests in mind, 
that he really does love them. And because he loves them, that's why he wrote the severe letter. He couldn't watch the Lord's flock go astray on his watch because Paul was a faithful watchman over the flock. And this is one of the most important roles of leadership and elders. We have an article that's going to be soon published on that. And uh, I don't even know what I titled it. What did I call it, Dick? Maybe I need a new title. I don't know. It has something to do. You don't read the titles. <laughs> Dick's just finished editing it. It's going to be published probably within a couple of days on the Worldview Network. But it has to do with the most important role of elders in the local church, which is to watch out for the welfare of the flock. And it seems to be the one role that gets neglected above all others. And so I think I'm going to do, we're going to do an article and then we're going to do a radio show based on that. And I'm basing the article on Acts 20, Titus 1, and 2 Timothy 3, plus some sorted ideas found in 1st and 2nd Timothy. Because, uh, Timothy's problem, or the problem in Ephesus was that the elders had run, gone astray. Okay? And so Paul wrote Timothy how to correct wayward elders. And that's, that's what we find in the epistles. And if you look in First and Second Timothy, the one word, and I brought this out of my article, I looked up the word doctrine in the Greek, um, uh, didache, or teaching. It's, it's either translated doctrine or teaching, depending on your translation, but it's always the same Greek word. It's used, remember? 15, I think, 21. Yeah, 21. It's, it's, it appears 21 times in the entire New Testament, didache, it's used 15 times in the pastoral epistles. And that's showing us that as far as the pastoral epistles are written about elders and what elders ought to do. So it shows you how important doctrine is. But yet in most uh, cases, and in, in, uh, I think just across the board, the tendency, and I've seen this as long as I've been a Christian, the tendency when choosing elders is to look around and see who's the best businessman. Okay, if somebody's running a big business and they're very successful at that, and uh, then, oh, there's our elder, because this guy knows how to run a business. And assuming that they'd bring a skill set along to help the church run smoothly or something, you know, maybe I don't know what the motives are, but that's not the criteria for elders. The most important one listed is able to teach. And in First Timothy uh, with sound teaching, correcting those who are in opposition, refuting the people that teach false doctrine. And in Acts 20, to guard it over the flock because I know, Paul says, after my departure, uh, people will come in, drawing disciples after themselves, not sparing the flock, and even from your own selves will arise wolves. And so the number one job is uh, of a shepherd, and elders and shepherds, if you take the words in the Greek for uh, that are sometimes translated overseers or elders or, or bishops in the, in the King James, although the, the word bishop really isn't anywhere in the Bible. It's just the word for presbyter in the Greek. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. The, uh, if you take those words and you look at Acts 20, they're used all either in verb or noun form for the same group of people. So there isn't this idea that you have one guy who's the pastor who is the shepherd, and everybody else has some other role, but the elders are to shepherd the flock, according to Acts 20. And they're also overseers, and they're also elders. 
So corporately, it is the responsibility of every single elder to care for, watch out for, and protect the spiritual well-being of the Lord's flock. And this job is so profound that it's more important than everything else. And I, in fact, I'd go so far to say if, if a given church failed financially, but nevertheless protected the flock spiritually, that it would be a church commended by the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we don't need businessmen to make sure we don't fail financially. We need shepherds who make sure we don't fail spiritually. Yes. Well, even in the natural, if you have a shepherd that knows where all the good grass is, but doesn't care what happens to the sheep if wolves come in and kills them, you would consider him a bad shepherd. Yeah, he's just fattening up the sheep so the wolves could have a better meal. <laughs> okay, so uh, clearly we uh, this article will be available soon, and then we'll have a radio show we're probably going to do while I still remember what was in the article, right, Dick? <laughs> Strike while the iron's hot. So Paul was a faithful shepherd of the flock, and it wouldn't be good for him or them for him to be given pain because of their wayward tendencies. So Carla, if you could look up Proverbs 27, 5, and 6, and Linda, Jeremiah 13, 15 to 17, and Pauline, Luke 19, 41 to 44. That's Luke 19, 41 to 44. And Larry, Romans 9, 2, and 3. You moved. You don't get another one, <laughs> Robert. <laughs> no, that's, that's cheating. <laughs> Paul, right? Yeah. Paul of Philippians uh, three eighteen. <laughs> okay, yes. Um, what was the main cause of all these churches in the epistles to fail or to uh, no longer exist? Uh, the failure, good question, uh, what, what's the, why did these churches fail? You know, Paul, look at the church at Ephesus. This one is an unbelievable case, all right? If there is ever a church in the history of the church since the day of Pentecost that had good leadership, it was the church at Ephesus. Just think about this. The first three years, Paul ministered there, all right? Paul spent parts of three years ministering in Ephesus. And then Paul turned the church in Ephesus over to Timothy. Now, that's good leadership. And you know who was there after Timothy? John. John, the Apostle John. So they went from Paul to Timothy to John. And then in the book of Revelation, Jesus says to the church, you got it? I was going to read that. Okay. Well, he goes, I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance. And the one thing they did learn is he says, and you cannot tolerate evil men and put to test to those who call themselves apostles and are not, and you have found them to be false. So they that learned lesson. that. They learned that lesson. That's a good thing to learn. And you have perseverance and endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary. But I have this against you. You have left your first love. Therefore, remember where you have fallen. Repent and do the deeds you did at first, or else I am coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. Yeah, so there was a call. To, so that's why... On our first service here, my sermon, I asked for prayer for us that we'd stay true to the Lord and to the gospel. And, that, and may we not lose our first love. Because there's no, the wayward tendency is just a universal human thing. Alright? And, and the more we know that to be true and we don't start thinking, well, I would never do that. That's the worst thing you could ever say. <laughs> I would never do that. 
Remember somebody in the Bible who said that? Peter. Peter said, I, I know all these other guys that deny you. I can see that real easy, but not me. And the next thing you know, there's Peter denying the Lord. So we shouldn't look at, I would never do that because then we're trusting man. But we say, I believe that God can keep me. I believe that God is so powerful and so gracious and so true that God can even keep me from straying if I depend on Him. That's the, the what we should think, not oh, how could those people do this? Well, we could too. Proverbs 27, 5 and 6. Better is open rebuke than love that is concealed. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. Wow. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. (laughs) Better to be uh, disciplined and rebuked by somebody who loves you than flattered by somebody who doesn't. All right, that's true. Jeremiah 13, 15 to 17. Listen and give heed. Do not be haughty, for the Lord has spoken. Give glory to the Lord your God before he brings darkness and before your feet stumble on the dusky mountains. And while you are hoping for light, he makes it into deep darkness and turns it into gloom. But if you will not listen to it, my soul will sob in secret for such pride, and my eyes will bitterly weep. And flow down with tears because the flock of the Lord has been taken captive. Yeah, so Jeremiah says, My eyes will weep and flow down with tears because the flock of the Lord will be taken captive. That's Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, he's called. And why was the flock of the Lord taken captive? Because they wouldn't listen. God gave them the truth. He sent them Jeremiah, he sent them many other prophets. They didn't want to listen because they didn't like his message. Jeremiah's message is, you've had too many, too many years of idolatry. It's gone on and on and on. And now the Lord's going to cure you of idolatry by sending Nebuchadnezzar to capture you and haul you off to Babylon. Because the Lord determined that he sent enough prophets to them to rebuke them for idolatry. They'd had occasional revival like under Josiah. But then they go back to their, their idolatry. So the Lord determined, as, the, as a, a good father of his sons and daughters, that the best way to cure Israel of idolatry was to haul them into captivity. Yeah. Well, to make them lose their privileged status in Jerusalem is what it turned out. And so they were hauled away. But Jeremiah was the one sent with his message. And they hated this message. They couldn't stand what he had to say. Because they couldn't accept the idea that God would do that. And Jeremiah said, no, go and serve the king of Babylon. And 70 years later, God is going to bring you back. And when you come back, you won't be idolatrous. You'll find out that you don't like living under idol-worshiping pagans. That their gods aren't so great. And that's literally what happened, by the way. Uh, there were, Not that there was ever a sin again in Israel after they came back, but they never went and started setting up idols in, in the place of worship again. Not literally. They, the idols became more internalized. Okay, uh, Luke um, 19, 41-44. Now as he drew near, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, If you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, 
surround you and close you in on every side, and level you and your children within you to the ground. And they will not leave you in one stone upon another, because you did not know the time of your visitation. That was Jesus' lament over Jerusalem. So now we saw Jeremiah's lament over wayward Israel and Jeremiah. And then now we see Jesus doing the same thing that Jeremiah did, only you know it's even more intense, because here's their, their Lord, the Messiah. And he uh, weeps because he sees the consequences that are happening to his wayward children. And so that's a very literal thing. And, um, you know, some people have looked at that passage that Pauline just read and said, well, see, that proves that God doesn't know the future. (laughs) No, the open theists make that argument. That every time you see this sort of thing, it's because God didn't know the future. And their reasoning is that if God knew all these things were going to happen, why would he weep as if there was, they could have been some other way? Why weep that they didn't see their time of visitation if God knew all along they weren't going to? Well, I wrote an article some years ago to, to show that that's fallacious argument. And it's not even true to how human language works or even how humans are. As a matter of fact, you can know something is going to happen and still weep over it and feel deep grief and emotion over what you knew was going to happen and what you warned. You could see, so you, you could know that somebody's course is going to destroy their life. And you can warn them and warn them, and, and they go ahead and do what you knew they were going to do. And then you see the consequences and still feel grief and sorrow and weep over it. So why are we assuming that Jesus Christ can't do that? That he has to be lacking knowledge in order to grieve over his own people. Um, one of the proofs of the open theist use where uh, there's a passage, I think in Jeremiah, where God said, I thought by now that you would be serving me, or something like that. And they take that literally to mean, well, he did think they'd be serving him, and he was surprised that they didn't. Uh, and only he was wrong. Well, again, it just doesn't even account for how human languages... Uh, I, I used an illustration um, about uh, some years... Well, that's our little wireless thing, uh, uh, hip, having a hiccup. Um, I used the illustration of uh, some year. Diane used to go down to visit her folks in in uh, Florida, you know, like 20 years ago. And um, so she goes down to Florida and is gone for a whole week. And she comes back, and the house is totally trash, and the bed's not made. <laughs> and so she says, "I thought you would have at least made the bed." <laughs> now that didn't mean that she was shocked that I didn't. Because she would have predicted if somebody would have said, "Will Bob do that?" No, he probably won't. <laughs> so when you say, "I thought that you would have," that that isn't saying that you were lacking knowledge. It was that you ought to have done it. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I essentially learned that, didn't I? Yep, I learned not to do that. Yeah, yeah, yeah we saw the problem. She doesn't go to Florida now. <laughs> Okay. Uh, all right. Um, Romans 9, 2, and 3. This is Paul's lament. Now, we saw Jeremiah lament over wayward people. We saw Jesus lament over wayward people. Now, Paul, listen to the same thing. That I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Yeah, so Paul said he had unceasing sorrow and anguish of heart because of his 
again, to illustrate what I was just saying about God's knowledge of the future, let, let's just do a little quick survey of Romans 9. It starts out with Paul's heartfelt lament that he could have wished himself a curse from Christ because he loves the Jewish people and that there are so many of them that didn't believe broke his heart. But he goes on, the rest of Romans 9, to explain why the situation existed. And his explanation was because God only chose a remnant. So we look at that as a contradiction. How could you lament over this bad situation if it was something that was known from eternity that was going to be that way? Because that's the way it is. You got Because God sincerely takes no delight in the death of anyone who dies, it says in Ezekiel. And He does sincerely love all people. And the more we are willing to embrace the whole counsel of God and believe that all of the Scriptures are true, the better we'll understand. But if we feel like we've got to eliminate parts that we don't like in order to make it seem more logical to us, then we can't understand the Bible. Because then we're trying to create God in our image. Uh, did we have one more? Yeah, Philippians 3.18, Paul's going to read. For many walk of whom I have told you often, and now tell you even weeping, that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ. Okay, so he says, I tell you even weeping that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ. And what a sad, um, almost oxymoron it is when you have a Christian who's an enemy of the cross. But you know, it happens. It happens. And I think that maybe they don't think that that's what they're trying to do, but anytime you diminish the value of Christ's substitutionary atonement, whether you intend to do so or not, you're an enemy of the cross. I'll yes. bring it back full circle to the start of the discussion. Bill Gothard's teaching is an enemy of the cross because I put value and I count on these laws that he's making and diminish the cross itself. So he is, even though he would say Christian, and trying to uphold God's kingdom and God's gospel, He's an enemy of the cross with what he's teaching. Right. No Christian teacher will ever want to say that that's what they are. Nor, nor would the ones that Paul was sweeping over that are enemies of the cross. None of them would say that's what they are. But how do you know whether you are or not? Because what values uh, do we see in the cross? What's the cross saying to us? Um, and what it's saying to us is that Christ died for sins... Once for all, the just for the unjust, in order to bring us to God. So there's the idea of substitution. And then you have the idea in Romans 5 where we were enemies and God died for enemies and that Jesus' blood was shed to avert God's wrath against our sin. So anytime we diminish that concept that God, uh, God's love was expressed by Jesus dying for sins, but the reason it's, it's a loving act because he bore our punishment that we deserved. That's what the cross is about. So anytime we begin to say, no, really what the Christian life is about is us following more laws, like you were just saying, Keith, I'm going to work, 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 work and be a better Christian, or, and then we don't see the need for the cross that's continually, the blood of Jesus continually cleansing us from all sin. Or if we begin to uh, create a Christianity, I got an example, I got a letter from somebody that was very angry with uh with me for the 15 radio shows that Brian Flynn and I did about my book. And I think, uh, did you see it, Keith and, and, and Dick, you saw it? Notice one of the things in that uh, that uh, nasty email I got. 
was that this whole thing of God's wrath against sin it probably is not going to work so good. Did, did you catch that part? Because I, in, I, in my book, I keep going back to the fact that the cross has to do with God's wrath against sin and the blood atonement. And so this purpose-driven guy that was very angry about our radio show says, uh, I don't think that works. Trying to scare people into the kingdom isn't going to work or something like that. He says, in my opinion, people that preach wrath, the people that come under those terms don't, aren't very good Christians or they don't stick around. Now, so they say we're going to not preach wrath. We're going to preach love minus any blood atonement or punishment for sin. And we're going to show them the value of being a Christian and how it's going to enhance their lives. Okay, so how you're going to be a better person. Now, is that, am I being overstepping the bounds by saying doing that is being an enemy of the cross? I don't think I'm overstepping anything because you're saying the cross really isn't necessary. We just need to learn how to learn how to be better people. And what happens is you gut the power of the gospel. If I don't understand the great debt that I have towards God and that Jesus Christ paid this massive debt of mine, the gratitude that that gives gratitude. If I think it's just a tiny debt, I don't have much gratitude. Somebody that forgives me a debt of a penny is no big deal. If somebody forgives me a debt and I go free from some massive debt, there's a corresponding gratitude that that has value for me. And And in doing that, you do diminish the value of the cross. Therefore, I don't preach it. I preach something else. It goes back to 1 John 4, 1. The, the whole concept is unless you preach and confess Christ. the work of Christ in the flesh, his work in the cross, you're not from God. And that's not what you see in Bill Gothard. That's not what you see in Purpose Driven. And God help us that it's what you see here. Right. You know, Paul, we, we, the, Paul preached uh, the gospel, including the cross. In fact, he uses the terms almost as a synonymous parallelism. He talks about the preaching of the cross, and he talks about preaching of the gospel. And the cross is, is a metonymy when it's used in that way. That's a figure of speech where a part designates the whole. So when Paul says the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, what he means by that is the whole, uh, like Christ coming in the flesh is in a, a metonymy also. It's a, it's a shorthand for the whole. So the cross means the whole work of Christ, the incarnation the sinless life, the substitutionary death, the shedding of blood, the resurrection from the dead on the third day to vindicate Christ and His claims and His bodily ascension to heaven. That whole event, that whole saving event of the incarnation and focused on the cross, the reason He came, when the term cross means the preaching of the cross, it's that whole thing. is a full-blown gospel of the person and work of Christ, what he, who He is, what He did, why we need Him. And... Any diminishing of the need of that or importance of that is uh, to somehow uh, skirt our main duty and our main preaching. Yesterday, we were recording radio. We're also going to do a series on Brian Flynn's book. We went through my book, and now we're working our way through his. And yesterday, we got to the part where he gets saved. So... Now we finally got him saved. We can go on here. But anyhow, we're working our way. We're in chapter 5. And there's an interesting part of Brian's story. I, I read his story, and he talked about going to the Don Byerly Apologetics Seminar and was convinced by evidence that Christ uh, was real and that the Bible was true. And he, at that point, says in his book, and I accepted Jesus as my Lord and Savior. And he prayed with his Christian friend at the back of the room. 
But then when he went home, the spirit guys were talking to him. Right? And so he had a few days of, of sinning and, and failing, and the spirit guys are saying, you're not really a Christian, you, you just said some words, you don't have the power to do this. And at the end of those days, as soon as he realized how wicked it was that he'd been talking to these spirit guides, and that Satan was real, and that he really hated Jesus Christ, then he, he just fell on his face in anguish and repented and uh, um, had another experience more powerful than the one he had at the church. So I decided to ask him something on the radio. Brian's not here to defend himself. but <laughs> You can tell when he gets here, you can tell him I was talking about this. But I, I decided just as we're on the radio to ask him. I said, Brian, as I heard, read your book, I got the idea that at that church you had made mental assent, but that your conversion happened at that latter experience. Do you see it that way? And he said, yes, that's how I think happened. He thinks that he realized that what he was doing was that he needed Jesus and he needed to quit ignoring the Bible because all these Christians were witnessing to him. But once he realized how horrible it was that he was in the bondage of these demons and Satan and the spirit guides, he had a what I believe was a conversion. And that's what Brian said. This this would come out on our radio show. And And then this next question I asked him was, Okay, there's there's all these deliverance that they're saying that you know if you ever had a Ouija board you have to go to them and have them cast the Ouija board demon out of you. And and so I said to uh, I said, uh, well, what about all that? Whatever happened to these spirit guys? He says after that they went away. When he was converted, they went away because he wouldn't listen to them anymore, and he knew they were from Satan. God delivers us. You don't have to go jump through hoops. Um, Mike. Oh, okay, Roger, and then hand it up. It's really easy for the purpose-driven to promise them a good life in the here and now because they use a watered-down gospel presentation. People don't really get saved, and they're spared trials and testing and tribulation. Right, that's a good point. <laughs> if you get saved, you'll have tribulation, right? So if you don't really get saved, you just merely go through life and try to solve problems. Yes, Mike. Yeah, I think one of the obstacles uh, today is that the very existence of evil, we, we, we rebel at that. And, you know, it's so hard for us to, uh, you know, plainly call out what is evil. And then if there is no evil, you know, God puts this high price. There can be no uh, forgiveness of sin without the shedding of blood. So that, so this, this whole thing of uh, shedding of blood is another thing. Oh, you know, evil is negative. Shedding of blood is negative. You know, we've got to be positive. And so we, we just we block that out of our lives and we don't let it come into our lives. We don't even admit it. I mean, when uh, uh, President Bush uh, talks about an evil regime, whether he's correct or not, uh, isn't, even the, isn't even the issue. It's the issue uh, that how could he say something is evil? You know, it's just different. It's it's got its own place and its own value, but it's it's different. And you know, as we become more sophisticated, sometimes we become more ignorant. And uh, you know, Proverbs talks about uh, the beginning of understanding and the beginning of knowledge, the beginning of wisdom, is fear of the Lord. You know, and. That's a negative thing, you know, fear. You know, 
I'm supposed to, the Lord's supposed to love me and I'm supposed to love him. But there this fear has to come first uh because there are ultimate consequences uh to what we do and how we live. Yeah, amen. Amen. Well, um this is what uh, I know you probably will all hear know fairly well because you listen to the same people we do. Uh, Ray Comfort, Todd Friel have been talking about this. John MacArthur has been talking about it. So there's a few of us that are trying to say to the bigger evangelical world that we lost our way somewhere and kind of got into this feel-good gospel that's offering to solve problems in this life and we forgot the real terms that are laid out in the New Testament. So in response to the guy that wrote the email saying that this wrath of God thing is really doesn't do uh, help people become Christians, <clears throat> my response is this. I didn't make it up. I didn't come up with, I didn't sit up one night and think, you know, if I start preaching on the wrath of God, I think everybody would want to be a Christian. <laughs> Actually, it offends people. <laughs> I, I, we, we preach it because we want to be true to what God told us to preach, knowing that it's a supernatural act of God that converts people. That thing, that's what happened to Brian Flynn. If you, when you, when you hear his story, I mean, he had everything in him going the other way. These Christians annoyed him. Wherever he went as a new ager was Christians. They kept bugging him, telling him about hell. And, and he tried to get away and tried to get away and tried to get away. Finally, he was faced with the fact that the demons really weren't solving his problems and that the Bible really was true. And then God converted him and, and, and delivered him from those familiar spirits that they even have names for. And he's been serving God ever since. So we're, I, when we get that series done, we'll, we'll just keep this winter. We're going to go all the way through his book. And then we'll run that whole series of radio shows about Brian's book on... Uh, one place, and then we'll put it on our website. So it's a role reversal for me. I get to be Dick. Exciting. Lucky me. <laughs> <laughs> Try to remember the intro. This is uh, Bob Duway. No, this is Bob Duway. This, no, this is Critical Issues Commentary, the radio ministry of Twin City Fellowship. I'm Bob Duway. That's it. That's it. So I'm doing, I'm doing Dick's role, and it's kind of fun, actually, to be the interviewer. Yes. How do you... Uh, play into war, like when somebody has to go do something for somebody, for somebody else and it's against their convictions. The ethics of war? Well, I don't know that I can solve that one. Um, it's, it's certainly um, on, the, on the radar screen of Christian ethics books. When I studied under Dr. Rakestraw at Bethel Seminary, he's one of his key areas of expertise is in Christian ethics and has written Christian ethics textbooks. And I didn't particularly agree with Dr. Rakestraw, but I respected his vast area of knowledge in this. He's, kind of, he's, him, he's a pacifist himself and felt that it was legitimate for Christians, based on their belief as Christians, to say that they felt military service was not for them. That's what he thought, but, but it's been debated, and I, you know... There's been movies made about it. Uh, one of um, what's the name of the movie? World War One. Sergeant York. Sergeant York. Fabulous movie. It was about that very thing. A guy that was had, be, had become a Christian and struggled with whether going to World War One was right or not, and he decided to go, and he became a hero. 
Sergeant York. It's a good movie from about, what, 1930-something? Way before my day, but some people like Dick were around back when that was... No. <laughs> yes. To show you what the integrity of Sergeant York was, is that he had opportunities to be on breakfast cereal and turn it all down. And then he wouldn't let him make a movie of his life. They wanted to after World War One. He refused that. And they would the only reason he let him make a movie was it was in nineteen forty one and they wanted to use it as a recruiting tool. Oh, well that's when they made it. Yeah. Okay. All right. So there if you want to uh, Yeah, I guess uh, No, I wasn't around in nineteen forty one. <laughs> All right, we're out of time. I'm, I'm so sorry. Uh, uh, but if you want to get an older movie that I that you won't regret watching, Sergeant York, I highly recommend it. Walter Brennan's in it. Gary Cooper. Okay. See, uh, we have a time of fellowship. Uh, uh, I think if we all help take the chairs down, that would be a good thing. See upstairs in half hour.